0: Imagine, demand, and build a world transformed.
1: Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's session of The World Transformed, which is on colonialisms and the global policing of dissent. I'm Tanya, and I put the session together in collaboration with some incredible organizers from the Detention Solidarity Network, which is an online space to critically engage with the structures and experiences of detention that constitute the carceral state in India. We're honored and excited to have an array of inspiring speakers with us today, joining us from India, Kenya, South Africa, Taiwan, and the UK. Before I introduce our speakers, I just need to read out a few announcements. So first of all, we want everyone to feel welcome in these spaces and for everyone's voices to be heard. So please bear this in mind when engaging with the chat or comment boxes during the session. Um, in the session, we will be using a live transcription service called Otter and attendees who are using Otter will have to follow a link and open the transcript in a separate window. This link will be shared in the chat box now with by a tech volunteer. If you're having any difficulties, just message the tech volunteer on the chat. And finally, TWT is free for all, but it's only made possible by the contributions of our supporters. So if you're able to, please consider supporting the festival. The link will be posted in the chat as well to help TWT sustain their work all year round. So our amazing speakers. First of all, I'd like to introduce Kerem Nishanjulu, who has kindly agreed to chair the session today. Kerem is a lecturer in international relations at SOAS and an organiser with the Preventing Prevent campaign. He is co-author of How the West Came to Rule, The Geopolitical Origins of Capitalism and co-editor of Decolonising the University, both of which are published by Pluto Press. We also have Shalini Guerra, who is a lawyer practising in the Chattisgarh High Court and uh, who works mainly in the field of safeguarding the rights of indigenous communities in central India. We have Gashirhi, who's the coordinator of the Mathare Social Justice Center in Nairobi, Kenya. We have Sibu Zikode from South Africa, who is the founding president of Abalali Base Majanjolo, which is a grassroots democratic social movement of shack dwellers. We have Radha D'Souza, who is a lawyer, social activist, and author of What's Wrong With Rights, also published by Pluto Press, and who works with the campaign against criminalising communities in the UK. Uh, last but not least, we have Brian Hugh, who is a writer, translator, activist, and DJ uh, based in Taiwan. He's a founding editor of New Bloom magazine and a member of the Laosan Collective in Hong Kong. So um, I'm gonna hand over to you now, Karen.
2: Thank you Tanya uh, for the introduction and thanks all of you for um, attending this session and as mentioned, I'll be chairing this discussion, but I'm also going to just give a brief introduction into the thematic um, emphasis on counterterrorism in reference to the UK context specifically. Um, so some of you may have seen this week Um, in the news that various Tory politicians have been using the term extremist or extremism to describe the Extinction Rebellion protesters in London. Um, Now, I don't think there's anything especially new new with the state trying to criminalise protest and dissent. But I think maybe what's notable about our current moment is how much that criminalisation is couched in the language of counter-terrorism. The campaign group Netpol have been fighting against this for years and fighting against the use of the term extremism or domestic extremism to refer to um, protests, to delegitimize protests, but also to criminalize protest. And we saw how this criminalization um, played out in seemingly unprecedented ways a couple of years ago. So in 2017, um, a group of activists who had later become dubbed the Stansted 15 successfully blocked a mass deportation charter flight at Stansted Airport preventing the deportation of around 60 migrants. They were charged and in 2018 convicted with a terrorist offence, specifically um, the disruption of services at an aerodrome. Now, The maximum sentence for this offence is life imprisonment and thankfully the Stansted 15 um, avoided that sentence and were instead given fines and community service. But what this case demonstrates is a worrying precedent. The Stansted 15 were not treated as civilian protesters exercising their right to protest or exercising their right to free speech or dissent, nor were they treated as mere criminals. They were instead treated as terrorists. That is to say, they were treated as enemies of the state and enemies of the nation. Now, it might be tempting to see this case, and also um, the case of XR, as exceptional or perhaps even absurd, some sort of misuse of the law. And there is, of course, some truth to this. In some respects, it is absurd that these people are charged as terrorists, and it's um, in some cases um, in some respects exceptional. But treating it as such might lead us to misunderstanding how counterterrorism operates as something considerably more mundane and everyday. Take, for example, the UK government's prevent strategy. In 2015, this became a statutory duty that must be complied with in a variety of public institutions, such as schools, universities, um, certain um, health services, local authorities, and so on. So, today, um, what we find is teachers, lecturers, um, certain health professionals, um, social workers, housing officers, and so on are tasked with the work of counterterrorism. What is more, PREVENT is not even, strictly speaking, concerned with acts of terror, nor is it concerned with criminal acts. That's not the target of PREVENT. Instead, PREVENT is supposed to identify individuals at risk of becoming extremists and then intervening with the radicalization measures to prevent them becoming more extreme or prevent them eventually committing violent acts. So with the PREVENT strategy, what we see is how counterterrorism is becoming increasingly concerned with surveilling and policing non-criminal or pre-criminal spaces, acts, and behaviors, and encouraging, moreover, civilians to do that policing and surveillance. Um, Just a couple of examples of behaviors or acts that at various moments has been um, indicated by the PREVENT strategy as being at risk of extremism, opposition to the 2003 British invasion of Iraq, support for Palestine, support for certain socialist parties or environmentalist campaigns. in terms of behaviours becoming, say, for example, in a classroom, increasingly withdrawn, becoming, for example, increasingly animated, entering into new friendship groups or social groups. All of these have been at various points suggested by the prevent strategy to demonstrate behaviours that might indicate you're at risk of becoming radicalised or extreme. So today we're witnessing the proliferation of counter-terrorism into not only spaces of dissent, but also into the everyday, into the very fabric of our lives. And so this demonstrates that, Counterterrorism is not just concerned with exceptional or isolated moments of violence. Instead, it forms a much more mundane and prevalent articulation and reproduction of state power, control, and authority. And so, when we see it like this, counterterrorism becomes something maybe a bit more familiar to all of us and something that um, might be a, a shared or common concern, something that we might not necessarily be able to turn away from or opt out of. Now all of this has a much longer history that connects our present to Britain's colonial past and it also has a much wider international set of connections in global counterinsurgency policing and the speakers on this panel will help us get a better understanding of these geographical and historical connections and so it's to, these, um, to our panelists that we now turn and first up is Charlene who is calling in from India. So over to you, Charlene.
3: Hi, uh, thanks, Kiaram. Uh, am I audible? Can you hear me? Well, at least I hope I am. Um, I think one of the most, the oft-repeated phrase about the times we're living in India today is that um, we're living in a state of emergency. Uh, it's a very banal statement, but there can't be a truer statement than this right now. What do we mean by, the f- the statement that we are living in an emergency, basically that um, the executive is all powerful and the other arms of the government seem to have collapsed. So we are seeing a complete crumbling of institutions, whether it is the judiciary, whether it is the media, whether it is investigative agencies, uh, the central investigative investigation agencies which were supposed to be autonomous, the various autonomous universities, Um, They have all really collapsed and we have an all-powerful executive and combined with that a very vindictive and a very vengeful executive. Um, Therefore, we are seeing uh, the imposition of a large number of uh, anti-terror laws, um, preventive detention laws um, used against all kinds of dissenters, however, um, what should I say, however commonplace they might be. So even um, the status of fear in the population is very high. People are generally scared to criticize the government in any form. Um, And even uh, very, very uh, common activities like signing for petition is something that it now requires political courage to do. Um, And I'm going to just give some examples about uh, what kind of dissent activities, or I won't even call them dissent activities, this is just a regular simple expression of political opinion. And these kinds of expressions of political opinions are now being criminalized and not only just criminalized in ordinary criminal laws, but really draconian laws of draconian antiquated laws like sedition law has been applied on them. Preventive detention laws are being applied. And yes, uh, the anti-terror laws are being uh, imposed on people. Um, So for instance, we have an example um, uh, some of you might know that uh, last year uh, we had a, the citizenship law was being amended, and there were widespread opposition to that amendment. A nineteen year old college student, Emulia, she goes on a stage and um, wants to say that the citizenship law should not be on the basis of religion. And just says something as banal as long live Pakistan. Pakistan is a neighboring country. We are not at war with it, it's a friendly country. And just the statement gets the sedition law imposed on her, and she spends six months in jail. And the National Investigation Agency wants to investigate her case. Um, the Fridays for Future, a group that is supported by Greta Thunberg. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a group that engages with students and uh, uh, recently we've had an amendment to an environmental law, the environment uh, impact anal- analysis law, which dilutes many of the env- environmental procedure, processes. So there was again some opposition to it amongst the environmental circles. Fridays for future this group starts an online petition and people can go there and just click on a button to send an email to the environment ministry. This group and the website and the website host of this group gets an anti-terror laws blocked against them because this act of sending a petition to the environment minister is held to be a terrorist activity. And then of course you have the case of Kashmir, a state uh, where, um, which has recently lost its statehood last year. And in preparation for that, the entire state, the entire state was clamped down and uh, 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 people, uh, normal activity was stopped. Uh, The lockdown that we're experiencing now in post-COVID times was actually happening there much uh, much before this. And even now, after a year, we have people still in house detention and not just people. We have the ex-CM, the ex-chief minister of the state who has spent more than a year in house detention because again, it is too dangerous to let her out because she might stoke uh, public opinion against the act that the center has done. What is this act that the center is doing? What is the political project that is happening? It is what we call the Hindutva project, which is the project of imposing a hegemony of Hindu ideas or or certain kind of Hindu ideas, a majoritarianism, uh, a majoritarian uh, form of uh, Hinduism. On the rest of the population, and um, again, the, the natural foes of Hindu of this kind of a project would be the Muslims, or you know, the largest uh, religious minority that we have in India, or the people within Hinduism who have been uh, who have been uh, oppressed, the Dalits. And yet, when we have seen those constituencies rise. Um, Which they have in large numbers. We are seeing oppression on them as well. We have uh, two large cases happening now, Um, and we have large number of dissenters. um, One who participated in a in a Dalit um, commemoration, uh, Bhima Koregaon case, where fifteen people are fifteen well known human rights activists are detained, and another uh, after the uh, citizenship amendment. Rights. Uh, the law was amended. The widespread uh, opposition to that violence that came as a result of hindutva sponsored terrorism is now being blamed on university students, lecturers, human rights activists. So um, th- that is the kind of uh, terror that we're seeing in India right now. I think I've run out of my time, so I'm going to stop over here. But uh, I just want to say that what, what separates this terrorism at uh, this um, state of emergency from early states of emergency is just the pervasiveness that is encompassing the entire country and not just certain areas, and also the widespread popular participation in this kind of emergency. Um, with that, I'll I'll end my talk right now and wait for the discussion.
2: Thank you so much, Shalini, for, for that um, really interesting um, and important report. Um, our next speaker is Subu, um, who I think has been having some slight technical def- difficulties with the connection, um, so please bear with us if um, there are issues with the connection, but fingers crossed everything um, should be fine. Um, but yeah, um, Subu is um joining us from uh, South Africa. Um over to you. Sabu, um, can you hear us? Yes. Great, you're on. You're up next. Hello? Hello. Hi, we can hear you. You can go ahead. Okay, um, I think we may have lost um, Sabu. Um, in that case, we can move on to another speaker and see if hopefully we can fix the technical issue and then we can bring Sabu back into the um, into the um, conversation. Um, so um, next up, we'll invite uh, Brian to speak who is calling in from um, Taiwan. So um, can we go over to Brian, please?
4: Hi, everybody. Hi, over um, to you. Hi, everybody, Hope you can hear me. So yeah, I mean, primarily I will discuss China and Hong Kong today, uh, national security in these two contexts. So what national security has come up uh, frequently in the past few years, actually, just as a kind of longer phenomenon, is a way to crack down on political distance, but particularly regarding the fear of, so quote unquote, separatism. In Hong Kong, this is the claim that activists are interested in breaking away from China, that they are working in collusion with foreign forces uh, to undermine the integrity of the nation as a whole. And that this oftentimes takes the the claim that uh, people are trying to engineer quote unquote, color revolutions, uh, attempting to subvert the state and so on. Uh, This has also taken the form, particularly in Western China in the region of Xinjiang, of interning, thought to be over 1 million Uyghurs in dissension camps. And this is, uh, these camps are officially for the purposes of re-education, quote unquote. Uh, But this is claimed also to be in the name of national security. And so in this case, again, the cause returns to uh, these claimed fears of separatism and that, for example, Islam is an ideology that needs to be stamped out. So what form does this take? Um, this has taken place in different forms, for example, in different contexts. In Hong Kong, one has seen the criminalization of very mundane acts, for example, uh, carrying paint. You can be accused of participating in demonstrations if you're just buying paint. This happened to a 12-year-old girl recently. Uh, there was a bus driver, for example, that was accused of uh, also, perhaps, hoping to participate in demonstrations and endangering the state and endangering national security in that way. Uh, just by carrying a spanner, which was using to adjust the windows on his bus, um, and so this returns to the passage of a national security law a few months ago, uh, which was aimed at criminalizing sed- sedition. Uh, basically, uh, uh, at undermining the Chinese state would be something that would lead to charges of five years in jail, ten years in jail, more, um, and so forth. But what hasn't one scene has been instead is that this has, uh, while this is justified on the basis of maintaining the rule of law. Uh, this has just led to the law of CBC ceasing to do this in Hong Kong. It is what the police say. And I think it really fundamentally returns to the relation of the state and society, uh, that police are the force in society that has a legitimate, uh, is allowed a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence, and and, and structural issues such as those. Uh, but then then this, this uh, justification of national security is very interesting in that sense. Um, so particularly then, I think because a lot of this panel wants to focus on the legacy of colonialism, uh, in Hong Kong, this is has taken a form of reviving colonial institutions, uh, such as, the special force that existed in British colonial times, which was used to, to target threats that were used. Uh, that, that worst was the endangering of British national security, of the integrity of the colony. Um, and then to turn our attention to Xinjiang in this in this context, uh, what one has seen is the use of anti-terrorism discourse that seems dry, primarily drawn from the world uh, the war on terror that has been led by America. Um, This is particularly the case because China is a rising power and seeking to assert its uh, weight now internationally in terms of politics, economics, and so forth. And China has a desire to pose as a responsible international actor. Uh, For example, with the Trump administration withdrawing from free trade agreements and international agreements and military alliances, China has tried to step into that gap. And in this case, uh, this is actually, again, another another example of that, using this discourse of uh, anti-terrorism. Uh, particularly regarding uh, targeting uh, Muslim-majority countries that the US has spread since the world on terror and using this to justify what it claims to be an an internal security threat regarding uh, Uyghurs. And this has then become a tool in this way for uh, Han supremacy. Uh, Uyghurs in Xinjiang are Muslim-majority and now there are attempts to, for example, move vast populations of uh, Han migrants into Xinjiang to displace the original residents uh, to, and actually, it is also been reported just based on uh, statistics from the Chinese state that the, the population in Xinjiang is declining. And one, thought, one reason thought to be out behind this is actually forced sterilizations. Um, and so in, this is one case in which national security is used to justify uh, what, what some would see as a colonial project. And then returning to, I think, the, the fact that this source comes from the US, from a uh, global American empire, uh, this has many different shades and one can see how uh, China is, is, is in this way kind of mimicking actually the actions of the US. And so I think that one can draw a lot of uh, uh, connections then in terms of the effects of national security laws. Uh, in this, the, what happens, one sees across the board is that just very mundane acts are criminalized. Uh, everyday life becomes surveilled. And in Hong Kong, one sees this, for example, that uh, if you wear black, for example, you could be arrested. You could be targeted as being participating in demonstrations because black is color demonstrations. And in Xinjiang, now it's it's just it's present in everyday life. Uh, it's thought that there is, uh, for example, uh, you, you're fingerprint will have to be taken if you're traveling, um, if you, uh, it's it's very unclear on the criteria that leads you to be imprisoned in a uh, re-education camp, quote unquote, um, and so forth. And unfortunately, I think that particularly, uh, this has been leveraged on by Western countries to criticize China, but there's kind of a blindness to how these practices uh, are seen also in Western countries. One observes a set of convergent behavior between China and the surveillance states that have already existed in Western countries. In many cases, I think China is actually mimicking Um, what Western countries did before it. And so this plays out particularly with the legacy of American imperialism, also British colonialism that one sees in Hong Kong and so forth. Uh, But then also what's been an interesting development, which I think maybe we could be also, uh, we can draw a number of connections here, is the use of COVID-19 as a pretext for former clampdowns on freedoms. Um, In Hong Kong, for example, elections have been suspended for one year with a claim that this is because of COVID-19. I mean, this is not a national security issue insofar as uh, regarding state security per se, but it's still claimed that this is for the, the welfare of the people. This is an attempt to prevent the virus from spreading and going out of control in that sense. And I think that then one will see increasing measures uh, regarding COVID 19 as justification for this. Again, just looking at international trends. And I think that across the board, one has seen COVID 19 used as a, uh, a way to justify a state of emergency. And this is something that's particularly invisible in Hong Kong and elsewhere. Um, and this is, for example, also been used to justify. Chinese military aggression, uh, for example, conducting frequent military drills in the South China Seas, or uh, sending military planes to uh, harass Taiwan, where I'm located, uh, on the, just during this this time, I think as a, a way to distract, um, because, you know, this is also claimed that and then uh, uh, during the COVID-19 crisis, you have to maintain your borders, you have to watch out for external threats, and so I think then it occurs on a number of levels. Um, so I'll just end it there, and I think we can uh, talk more, I'll be looking forward to discussing with everybody.
5: Brilliant,
2: thank you, Brian, for that. Um, next up, we have um, Gasheki, who is joining us from Kenya. So, can we go over to Gasheki? Over to you.
0: Okay, thank you very much, Karim. I hope you can hear me. Am I audible? I can hear you. We can, I'm... Yes, thank you very much, Tanya and comrade who have organized this meeting. It's very inspiring, especially connecting us especially during this uh, COVID-19 crisis. Uh, the challenge that we are facing here in Kenya, and especially, you know, the history of Kenya is a former British colony. Kenya was uh, was colonized by the British, uh, and as you know, as India, and as Karima said, uh, our historical connection with the police violence or terror, or, or how the state are using it, terrorism to, to, to contain and criminalize uh, legitimate protest. So, as you know, Kenya has a deep history with the, in the relationship with the former British imperialism and uh, through settlement here in Kenya, uh, colonial settlement, uh, the, the neocolonial state Kenya was created. And for many years, we have never moved away from that. Uh, from In 1963, you know, it was a flag, independence. Then we had a dictatorship of Jomo Kenyatta. Then after that, we had a dictatorship of uh, Daniel Turoi Moy, where there was a lot of torture, uh, police state, uh, criminalization of the political movement. So that is the history where we are coming from. Uh, It roots from the British imperialism and a colonial settlement in Kenya. And in the early 50s, there was a Mau Mau struggle. You know how how the British did with the, the Mau Mau. Uh, they crushed that movement through military and, uh, and 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 torture. So that is our history, where we, we locate the history of the uh, police violence in Kenya. And recently, you know, uh, Kenya is bordering Somalia. Uh, Somalia has been a big problem uh, where issue of terrorism. Uh, U.S. Uh, U.S. government and, and, uh, and U.K. They have been involved a lot in uh, training Kenyan. Uh, soldiers and uh, security agencies in Kenya on issue of terrorism. Recently, there was a a, a, a report that was exposed in the Mirror uh, newspaper about uh, the training that has been happening here in Kenya with the Kenya security agencies. And these security agencies, in the last uh, almost uh, 10 years since you started having problems with terrorism, they have been involved in cases of enforced disappearance, torture, police killing, uh, and extrajudicial killing uh, that we have been documenting for um, for, for many years. Uh, it has been very difficult in Kenya because uh, the nature of the state is very violent, and it's borrowed from the history of the colonial past. So we have been trying to organize in Kenya through social justice movement in the same way comrades from South Africa, maybe they are doing with the dwellers or India, how people are struggling, as sharing has said. Uh, with the protest. So we've been struggling here in Kenya to try and build a democratic state, but it has been very difficult because of the complacent relationship with uh, these big powers, especially the US and UK, in terms of uh, security training. And some of these security training police officers they are used to do criminal acts against ordinary people. And that's what Madari Social Justice Centre and many other social justice centers that have been documenting in the last uh, few days in the last um, uh, few years, and we have been doing uh, protest and marches uh, to condemn this as a way of uh, building a mass movement, against this this uh, colonial state violence. So our challenge has been, uh, it has been very difficult to organize, especially when you're being criminalized by state. The pro- many times our protests are, are uh, broken up, people are arrested, detained,
2: Am I still there, Karim? Hello. Yeah, we, can hear, we can hear. you. You can hear me. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. yeah,
0: we can hear yes, you. So. Man. Hello.
2: We can hear you. We can hear you. Uh, can you hear us? If you, could, um, you can, if you can carry on because we can hear you okay, or maybe not. I think it may have just disconnected. Um, it looks like it may have uh, disconnected just now. Um, we can give it a couple of seconds. Um,
0: just my if have, I'm there. So I'm saying that in uh, 2019 uh, we had a new repro- policies. That were introduced by AMF and World Bank. So millions of young people left the rural areas to come to the city. Came to the city, there was no job. So we have informal settlement. Seventy percent of the uh, of of uh, population in a city, they live in a uh, in shack dwellers, in informal settlement where there's no water, there's no health care, there's no housing. So these these informal settlements they have been a major problem of systematic police killing, police brutality and disappearance like recently we have a number of cases where people have disappeared with no trace we have a lot of cases of the uh, illegal detention many of the uh, people are being detained illegally so uh, the, the 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 new repro policy that was imposed by IMF and World bank in 1990 created a huge population of young people who have no job so what's happening now is, a, is a, the state because it has failed to produce provide them with a job or an employment, what the, the state is doing is to criminalize them. So anytime people are, are, are anytime people are, are are organizing, they are criminalized. So we have been documenting these cases of extrajudicial killing and we have organized social justice center. In Nairobi we have 16 social justice centres that are, are organizing around this issue of extrajudicial killing and enforced uh, disappearance. Uh, what I can say, I'm very happy that we are connecting together, even a uh, different social movement, so that we can unify our struggle and see how also uh, during this COVID-19 crisis, uh, we can build a movement that can uh, fight against this violence that are affecting our people. And mean, the struggle for a democratic change is a struggle to build a social justice state that can provide people with health care, water, food and housing. This is our struggle, and we will help us to connect with other struggles in the world, as is happening in South Africa, India, and everywhere, so that at least we can share tactics, struggles all over and amplify our voices. And I really appreciate it very greatly, and I'm very sorry for my problem with the internet.
2: And thank you, Gashake for that um, for that talk. And um, you absolutely do not have to apologise um, for for internet connections. Um, as as much yeah. as it's sort of like um, I guess like um, one of the one of the good things about the current situation is that we're able to connect online in this way. But at the same time, the sort of like unevenness in connection might also be a reflection of some of the um, global unevenness and hierarchies in yeah. terms of distribution of. Um, material materials and infrastructures and so on as well um so yeah no, no need to apologize and it was great hearing from you um next up we've got um sabu um i just want to note again also that um that um there may be technical issues but um hopefully um you can hear us and we can hear you sabu. i think you're you're muted if you can unmute um yeah oh back to mute. you're you're currently muted, Sabu you're currently muted um if you can unmute um yeah hello hey we can hear you now okay great
5: all right thank you thank you so much uh Karima I just want to thank the organizers of this conversation uh because it's really important for us to engage I just want to greet the comrades that are here, friends and partners and uh, supporters of our progressive um, efforts uh, to bring about social justice in our countries. Well, uh, I just want to say that the South African situation is much more different from what we have had because we do not necessarily have the anti-terrorism laws. However, I do want to say the following statements. We have been accused of being funded by foreign agencies who want to destabilize our hard-won democracy. These words are often said by state agencies and the ruling party in order to justify violence against communities and social movement in South Africa. These are words that are often used to conduct and justify violence that they continue uh, to hunt and criminalize uh, activities. The Abakali has faced a serious state repression, including violence and unlawful evictions, banning of protests, assaults, arrest, torture, and murder. We have lost almost eighteen activists uh, in South Africa, um, just in our own movement, in the last. Uh, past 10 years uh, with hardly any justice. This repression takes two forms. One form is directly through the state via the police, uh, which is the South African police services, the Metro Police and the Anti-Land Inversion Unit, also known as the Rogue Unit in our Metro's in South Africa. The other informal, the, 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 the other form is informal one uh, where the party thugs, particularly the ruling party thugs, that is hitmen, assassins, or izingabi, are uh, using violence, uh, all all forms of violence, and order to in order to kill um, our comrades uh, during the course of our struggles in South Africa. We are not just repressed through the anti-terrorism laws, as I have said. In fact, the repression. That is unlawful in South Africa. Whenever we approach the court to seek relief and win, we are often asked, who the hell are you to take government to court? As if government is some kind of a holy institution. For this reason, our movement and all other struggles use the court to protect ourselves from the repression carried out by the state and partisans, mainly by the ruling party. The law is much more progressive here than the government and the ruling party. So we often use the law against the government and the ruling party and oftentimes we win. Of course, we know that our power is in the communities and in the streets and of course not in court. We do not expect the law to win major victories in terms of access to land and housing or more radical goals because we believe that it is through organizing that the power you know, of the impoverished, of the oppressed people can actually change um, the, the systems of our society. However, we do use the law to protect ourselves and our right to organize and mobilize. For us, it is through organizing that we can build the power of our communities from below. This organizing outside the state and outside the ruling party has won us important victories as the state has resulted to criminalization of activists in various forms. The way that poor black people are treated in South Africa is a continuation of colonialism and apartheid. We are treated as people who don't count at all in our society, as people who cannot even think for ourselves. When we organize, it is always said that there is someone or there's a force or rather a third force behind our organization and struggles because uh, who the hell are we that we can really do major changes in terms of our own destinies and political landscapes in our respective country? We are treated as criminals. Whole communities are treated as criminals. All of this is a continuation of apartheid and colonialism that continue um, to dominate um, our struggles for a better South Africa. The black middle class and the elites no longer face repression. But for poor black people, nothing has changed. The state is no longer working for the people, but against the poor black people in order to align itself with the global capital that puts money before human needs. So with those uh, words comrades, I do want to make a call that we do need a strong international solidarity in order for us to counter colonialism and global policing of dissent that tends to undermine all the efforts that have been made uh, through struggles in the whole uh, global uh, communities. So I want to invite you comrades that there is a need for us to engage in an international solidarity. It is key for us to actually change uh, the situation that we are all facing. I
2: want to thank you. Brilliant Sabri, thank you um, so much for that. Um, uh, Most definitely uh, worth the wait. Um, uh, Next up we have Radha who if um, I'm not mistaken is calling from the UK, Um, over to you Radha. Radha's gonna have a a bit more time um, to speak um, just to cover like maybe I guess a couple of different facets um, for the purpose of this panel in terms of contextualizing um, some of the discussion um, so over to you Radha.
6: Oh thank you. Uh, I want to first thank uh, the World Transform for putting this panel together and for inviting me to be on this panel. Uh, I think we are living through times when the spaces for critical and socially engaged thinking is shrinking everywhere so I really value platforms like this where we can think through some of the issues that matter to us. And I also want to commend the organizers for giving time to consider the big picture, because I think most of the time we have become very accustomed to or trained to just look at the trees and not look at the forest. And while trees are important, the forest and its ecosystems are equally important to understand if we wish to navigate difficult terrain which is what we are being challenged to do these days. So within the time that I have, what what I think I might do is just to flag up some basic propositions or make some basic statements uh, uh, that gives a historical overview of anti-terrorism laws and policing of dissent uh, from colonial perspectives. And uh, I won't have time to expand on these things or explain it, but perhaps some of those things can be picked up in the Q&A that will follow. So I want to just uh, begin by first flagging up that criminalization of dissent and marginalized communities is not something new. This has happened throughout history. And throughout history, people who have rebelled against injustices, people who have challenged wealth and power and marginalisation, have always been, you know, punished, tortured, hanged. This is, this is part of our human history. Uh, this, and sometimes when we forget this, we tend to start believing in some of the promises that the systems of power and wealth uh, hold out for us. And I think it's important to put our activities in perspective in that sense. The second issue I want to flag up is that uh, the techniques of repression have always changed throughout history. In different periods of history, in, under slavery, under feudalism, these techniques have changed. And so under capitalism and capitalist modernity introduces some new techniques of policing dissent. And it's those techniques that we we need to focus on. And every time there have been changes in the character of capitalism, the character of policing and dissent have also changed to match that. So any changes in the way in which policing happens is also a signal that there is something else changing in the wider society in the economy in the political economy or the global order now one of the most important and central changes that comes with the modern state which was established with the rise of capitalism in european countries is the establishment of a new kind of state a new kind of state that has two institutions that are the backbone or the pillar of the state. One is a professional policing uh, organization, and that includes armed forces, so professional policing and professional bureaucracies. So these two institutions, their full-time job is to police and to manage. Societies. This had never happened before, and it's important to flag up that. And without a police and without a, a, a bureaucracy, there is no modern state as we know it. Now, why this is important for our purposes today is that national security then becomes an invisible arm of the state because it's part of the state apparatus, but we don't see it nowadays of course we talk about the deep state because we all understand you know much more now about the ways in which the state operates so in some ways national security is the other side of democracy so the state has two faces its the other side of the coin of the state is national security so if one side is democracy the other side is national security and this is how the modern state was established. The third point that I won't go on to make about the, about uh, ge- general comment is that uh, that the capitalist states are very different from the colonial states because the historical processes that established the co- capitalist states are very different from the colonial state. So. States established through colonialism have very different kinds of architecture of the state. And I think that is important to understand because very often we conflate states of the two types of states. Yeah, So America has a constitution. India has a constitution. Therefore, our states are all similar. No, they are not because they were constituted through completely different historical processes. And we can begin to understand that only when we restart looking into the fine print of the constitution into the fine print of the institutions that are constitutive of the state now having said that i will just go on to talk about a little bit about india because only to emphasize the historical importance of india for colonialism and for architectures of repression yeah, And the, John Stuart Mill, who many of you may have heard of, was a big liberal English thinker. He used to say that India was the experimental laboratory for the world. And what he meant by that was that practices that were trialed in India were then used around the empire. So they were taken to Kenya, to Hong Kong, to wherever, and trialed and, and adapted in other countries. And in India, 1857 was a very important moment. And I think this is not only for India, but for all colonized nations. Why was it important? Because in 1857, we had a big rebellion. And for the first time, British was challenged on a subcontinental plane. Because across different Indian states, different Indian territories, people Came up and rose against British colonialism. And that, and following 1857 in India, there were a spate of rebellions across the colonies. So the Morant Bay Rebellion in Jamaica, the Maori land wars in New Zealand the expansion or the globalization of the Fenian Brotherhood in Ireland and the 1867 rebellion of the Fenians. So after 1857, you find in colony after colony after colony, rebellions. And what this does is it makes colonial governance and colonial administration a very central issue for British Empire, which was the leading empire at that time. And so the British start, start establishing, and this is the time, and that's why it's so important, uh, techniques of colonial governance. yeah, And start establishing a, another kind of state, a colonial state, which is got where it has a professional bureaucracy, and at some levels with a lot of natives so-called involved in it, But it also begins to establish a state based on securitization. So in a way, a securitized state in the colonies begins with the first attempts to suppress anti-colonial movements. And that history is important. And the way kind of states that are established are very different from the states that were established in Europe. The principal difference being that the institutions of the state in the colonies are very racialized and tribalized so some tribes who are called martial races for example they become uh, you know assigned to military and defense kind of forces there are some tribes or some communities or some religions that are seen as bureaucratic or more suitable for bureaucratic jobs and they get assigned. So this kind of est- state incorporates or institutionalizes, uh, you know, contradictions among people in the colonies at the very heart of the state. And we find this everywhere. The legacies of this and the follow up of this everywhere, whether it's Rwanda's um, Hutus and Tutsis, or India Hindus and Muslims, or or. Various other countries, you can find these examples: Tamils and Sri Sengalas. So these kind of divisions are institutionalized in the state, and that's that's an important part of the policing that happens. The other thing is, independence was granted to us, but it was granted on the condition that the institutions that were established by colonial powers will continue to remain as they were, and that is important. Coming now to, I have uh, not much time, so I'll just fast forward this. Um, Coming now to anti-terror laws. Most of the anti-terror laws that we see now have their genealogy in the First World War. Because the First World War unleashed rebellions, anti-colonial rebellions around the world, because people, most of the world wars were fought by soldiers from Africa, from India, from New Zealand, wherever. And these people began to question, why are we fighting for this empire, which is treating us like rubbish, basically? And so the rebellions that came out of that and the policing systems that were introduced that are still the template, if you like, for our anti-colonial laws today. I will just go on to the 9-11 moment, because after after the World Wars ended, we have a modification in the institution of the state and the emergence of what we now recognize as the military-industrial media complex. So Wall Street and CIA and all these people were established within the American state. Wall Street becomes part of the American state during this time. And then from there, of course, uh, uh, we have a new kind of policing, which is highly technologized, highly centralized, and highly globalized. 9-11, of course, exposed this this thing, because 9-11 made it clear that, you know, there was only when there was only one imperial power how coups happen, how CIA operates, etc. etc. And 9 11 also made it clear that uh, the whole uh, 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 9/11, post 9 11, one of the things that happened everywhere was signing of new defense treaties, intelligence sharing treaties, sharing a new uh, spaces for. Uh, bases military bases across Africa many parts of Asia and we find a renewal of some of those treaties and agreements which we don't pay enough attention to when we talk about domestic laws and after 9 11 of course in the name of war on terror this becomes incorporated into the UN system the international law and an entire international framework so the war of, on terror now becomes a global war against all people around the world who are fighting for justice. I'll just stop there with just one word on what should we do now. And I will just stop by saying, perhaps we need to seriously rethink a new kind of internationalism that focuses on the international order and for what it stands and what it does. Besides, of course, doing our own national level struggles. I'll just stop there and we can maybe come back.
2: Thank you, Radha. Um, that was a great intervention and a number of prompts that I think will provide um, a basis for further discussion um, in the QA. and um, We're going to move on to the QA, uh, but before we do that, we're going to have a short five-minute Screen break. Um, so we're going to break for five minutes. Um, that will hopefully give us all some time to sort of like get a short break but also gather our thoughts and also hopefully give you um some time um to uh pose some questions that we can then return to and um ask the, the participants, the panelists um to respond to um in the QA. Um, So we'll have a five minute break and then if we can all come back um, at half past three um, UK time um, in five minutes, um, we'll then begin the Q&A for the second part of the session. Um, But thanks to all of the speakers so far and thanks everyone for listening so far and we'll see each other soon. Hi, everyone. So uh, we're back um, for the second part of the session. Um, And um, we're now going to have basically a discussion based on some of the themes and issues that were discussed in the talks. Um, I'm going to start with a few um, direct questions to the panelists. Um, And as I do that, please do continue to post questions in the comment section. And um, once I've um, had a couple of rounds of questions with the panelists, we'll bring in your discussion points um as well um so i was just going to start with um maybe um thinking about ways in which we might um, be able to connect these um related but um but also i guess um, uneven experiences around questions of the policing of dissent and its relation to counterterrorism um practices um but the first question I actually wanted to ask is maybe something that that everyone's sort of trying to deal with at the moment, which is um, how organising um, against or through these processes um, and these um, forms of policing, um, how that's being um, conducted in our current context um, in these exceptionally difficult circumstances. Um, so that includes, I guess, our current moment in, ter- in terms of COVID. Um, but also like, um, I guess more broadly speaking, the very difficult circumstances um, of organising in a context of such repression, um, surveillance and state violence and so on. Uh, one thing in particular that we might um, want to interrogate is um, how activists not only maintain um, the, um, their organisational capacity but also their, I guess, um, emotional and physical capacity to, to organise against um, police brutality um, counterterrorism and so on. Um, so that's a question um, I want to first invite um, Sabu to respond to. So, how, how have you, how, how, how have your, how has your organisation been organising in these firstly difficult circumstances of repression, but also um, the uh, exceptional circumstances, supposedly exceptional circumstances of, of COVID? Uh,
5: yes, th- thanks, Karim. Um, I hope I, I hope you can hear me.
2: I can hear you. Yeah. Can you hear? Yeah, we can hear you. Yeah.
5: Perfect. Yes. Um. That's that's not an easy question, I must say. Um. But to answer you in short, I would say, uh, we have learned so much from a quote from Franz Fanon, uh, who once said, "Each generation must discover its mission, fulfill it, or betray it." If the movements, grassroots activists have not discovered their mission, it is highly unlikely that one can begin to engage on that question. So we need to commit ourselves to social change. By commitment, I really mean it because there's a heavy price that we have paid in order to um, engage on that question. So we have been organizing and we are organizing because we have a very clear vision and mission and part of that is to say, um, I mean, we, there was a point where we reached out a stage where we said, it's a do or die. Uh, because it's not just about us as a current generation, it is about our children, it is about our future, and therefore we ought to be doing something uh, without fear. So that's what Abakhali have been doing, but to get it right, we got to organize on the ground where we are, with what we have, with what we can within our reach. Before we can actually talk about the international solidarity and connection, we need to build a strong foundation in our neighbourhood, beginning with our families and our, our neighbourhood. And once we build that strong foundation, then we can actually expand in terms of organising.
2: Thank you. Um, I think maybe, in fact, um, one thing that's interesting about the COVID moment when, um, depending on the national context you're in and the nature of any kind of lockdown is that for some of us um, it's thrown us into greater proximity with our immediate communities and neighbours and offered new opportunities for organising. Um, and I wonder if there's something in that. Um, but I also wanted to bring in um, Shalini on this question on how, um, on the challenges of organising in um, repressive contexts but also um, in, in the current situation and how, um, how have you been tackling those, those challenges?
3: Um, hi, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I think the biggest problem of these repressive uh, ages is really that of organizing because every time you start becoming successful in your organizing, you're going to be swatted down like a fly. And uh, this is something I was referring to, but I, I don't know, I think I got cut at that time. Uh, was that we've seen two times in the past where there have been really wide upsurges against the regime this repressive regime and it's it's come from marginalized communities and they've been really successful um two years ago uh some of the marginalized communities we call them valets, they're the um um people lower in the castes um they had a very, very successful mobilization um, around the 1st of January, 2018, two years ago, um, where they really, uh, they had 35,000 people congregate at a spot, take a pledge um, against this repressive government and said, we are not gonna support it. We are pledging by the constitution and we will overthrow this. Immediately, the um, um, private gr- militaries supported by the state, Uh, attacked them, there was violence, and in the violence that followed, uh, the people who were held responsible were, in fact, the victims of the violence. These oppressed communities that were held uh, responsible for it, and we're still continuing to see human rights activists um, arrested on the charges of this conspiracy. and then again, we had uh, last year uh, the religious minorities. They came together, and again was a very successful movement, very successful organizing by lots and lots of people around the country. And the same thing happened that they were again beaten back by these uh, by people, very well documented people supported by the regime. Uh, violence ensued, and again it was it was religious minorities which were held responsible for the violence. And again, now we have like twenty academicians, lecturers, prof- university professors, uh, university students in jail as culprits for this violence. So it is a big deal. It's 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 really, really uh, imperative that we keep organizing against these regimes. But each successive wave of this organizing is met back by a very, very forceful um, uh, Uh, you know, recounter. And I think the only way out of it is really international solidarity, because unless we all stand up for each other in these across these boundaries, we are all going to just kind of crumble and die in isolation. Um, So for me, um, you know, education, alerting awareness of what's happening in every other country is really important. And coming up with strategies collectively is going to be very key for what's going on.
2: Thanks. Um, Shalini, can we stay with you? Because um, I sort of had a follow-up question on, on that, um, which is, so, so on the one hand, there is um, sort of very direct and, I guess, almost sort of like naked forms of repression um, being mobilized against people trying to dissent against some of these things. Um, I was wondering about some of the, I guess, maybe more, more covert um, and infrastructural um, forms of um, suppression Um, of dissent so i've got in mind in particular surveillance and surveillance technologies and how this is being um, mobilized um, to suppress dissent Um, and that might include you know um, state surveillance but also could include um, more private forms of surveillance as well such as private contractors and and social media Um, do do you have anything to say say on say on that
3: well i'm not sure if this is what you're referring to but in india at least we have troll armies i don't know if they're a part of world everywhere but yes social media has become an important battlefield uh, uh, uh forget social media talk you know television talk shows they've become a battlefield they're the ones that are really um leading the lynch mobs and um really targeting you. And I'd say that India's, you know, what I wanted to say also was that India's been through uh, a history, it has a history of a formal declaration of emergency, where also dissent was outlawed. Um, That was in 75, indeed, under Indira Gandhi. And now also we are seeing that dissent is really, really being criminalized. But there was a big difference there. We had at that time, we had only the state to fear. Now we have your neighbors to fear. Now, if you say something, you're not really bothered about the state. The police is going to come, but they're going to stand back and watch while your neighbors corner you and the neighbors put you in, a, you know, um, the, the private lynch mobs come and they tear you down. And that's the situation where we are now. It's no longer just a state. There is a, it, it is a whole populist part of the state that is terrorizing you. So if you say something out of it, uh, then there. servants is a big, part of it. In fact, um, as you probably know, um, uh, y- y- you know wh- we have a lot of data tapping, um, phone tapping. And I myself have been a victim of uh, the Pegasus scam where we realized that uh, through WhatsApp, our phones were being monitored. Um, so that's something we live with on an everyday basis. Um, and uh, there are private means of uh, surveillance, and there are large- scale surveillance uh, in terms of you know your ID cards, the biometric ID card that we all have now, the Aadhaar card, and even the schemes the government is putting out over there they, they the databases are all coalescing and they need all your private information and what what's the security there there are no data. Privacy laws. There is no data security. So where is this data going, and how is it being used? The big questions we grapple with.
2: Thanks for joining me. The same question to uh, Brian um, about um, surveillance technologies and the way in which that's been mobilised to, to suppress dissent. Um, Brian, yeah, Can
4: you hear me? Yeah, that's right um so i think particularly with advancement of surveillance sort of technologies then our tactics as activists just need to become more sophisticated and that can be complex uh, it requires a steep learning curve sometimes um for example you know algorithms are much more advanced now in terms of identifying people so we just need to get used to for example covering up faces uh, identification marks such as tattoos and, and that kind of thing um and i think what's then particularly salient to uh, international exchanges such as this between activists and organizers is that the same technologies circulate Um, between countries, major countries such as the US and China are exporters of technology, of surveillance technology. Uh, You see the proliferation of the same apps globally. And so the dangers faced by people in one context can be applied to another. And the tactics developed by one uh, people in one context can be also used in other contexts. And so for example, now um, with actress in Hong Kong and elsewhere, there's the need to use telegram and and things like that um, to develop strategies for what happens when let's say someone in a group gets arrested and then that, that group is compromised. And then this can be applied to other contexts, uh, that you know, other other places in the world also are using Telegram as a way for secure communications. Um, and in that respect, um, but and and just the, the I think the danger is then that uh, it's it's almost like an arms race. I think between us and the state uh, or or policing regimes around the world. Um, they learn from each other, and we need to learn from each other. Um, they develop new technologies or use new technologies in, in different ways, and we also need to come up with with that. think um, in Hong Kong, I mean, it's it's particularly interesting because this is a uh, closed city in which uh, there are young people participating demonstrations, uh, in which there is surveillance in many frequent places. But then the tactics that are developed uh, in this in this location, for example, they can be used elsewhere. But for example, if you can't actually go uh, protest, for example, because of COVID-19, uh, you protest at home, you shout slogans from high rises. And then in other contexts, for example, other places, other than urban centers in which there are high rises, you can shout slogans, and that, that's a way of demonstrating dissent. Um, yeah.
2: Great, thank you. Um another thing that we heard um a couple of times um during the during the talks was situating some of the contemporary policing uh, practices um and uh, counterinsurgency or counter-terror practices in various different contexts in um in, in situating that in a colonial history. Um so I wanted to go to um Gesheke, um because this was mentioned in your talk. Um and I was I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate and explain a bit in a bit more detail to what extent um contemporary um, policing practices that we see today in Kenya um, some of the things you mentioned police brutality um extrajudicial killings um perhaps the, the use of torture to, to what extent that they come from a colonial legacy um and whether or not this is um something that actually informs our present which is to say is the is is the colonial um not really even just the legacy or even just the past but something that that continues today. So, for example, relationships between the UK military and the Kenyan security forces. Um, so, so yeah, what are the what what kind of connections are there between contemporary practices and um, colonial practices? But I think we may have lost Biseke. Um But I think this question is not uh, just just applicable to solely the the Kenyan context. So, um, uh, I was wondering um, maybe if we can go to uh, Rada, because I think this is something that you mentioned as well when you were um, talking about the, the formation of the, the colonial state.
6: Yes, I mean, I think that my, um, obviously it was extremely brief, but uh, my point was that many of these anti-terrorism laws or, you know, most of these anti-terrorism laws were trialed first in the colonies to suppress colonial dissent. And that template then was used around the world, so that it became, you know, in at that time within the empire, and it became a kind of template. And my point was also that, you know, for example, I was going, you know, after World War One, when there was a big, massive wave of colonial, anti-colonial movements around the world, that is when the Defence of India Rules for the first time introduced. Anti terrorism laws as we understand it today in India, which was then exported around the world. If you compare the anti terrorism laws that were used in Ireland, in India, in Kenya, you know, you find that there is a similarity. Subsequent states have just continued that and, and have improvised and changed. And I guess the point to understand here is the template is still provided by, not by our states, but by the imperial powers. Now, of course, it comes in the name of international law. But the template still comes from somewhere else. And that is important to understand. The UN, for example, adopted the anti-terrorism laws, which were then signed up by all the countries, without questions. In the same way, and now we are supposed to be independent. Earlier, we could say we were colonized, etc. But we are doing exactly the same things. So I would want to look at the template writers rather than, you know, the people uh, who just adopt it.
2: Yeah, um, which is which is a really important point because we often imagine that these templates are. Are, are sort of drafted up in um, the imperial centre and then diffused to the imperial periphery, but often the the direction of travel is the other way is the other way around, and that is often the imperial centre that's the last to experience the most repressive um, forms. Um, and um, so, I just want I wanted to bring in uh, Gashake again. I think we we've reconnected. So the question was about um, on the one hand colonial legacies and how colonial the colonial past. And practices of the colonial past um, are, are, to borrow Radler's helpful word, a template for contemporary policing practices. So, um, what sort of um, practices originated in the colonial context that that are continued to be practiced today? But also um, to maybe invite um, an interrogation of the ongoing relationships of coloniality between, for example, Kenya and the UK, and the relationships, the contemporary relationships between the UK military and Kenyan security forces. So Gosheke, could you could you say a bit about that? Um, you're muted. So, um, can you hear us, Gosheke? Um, I'm not sure if we have a connection um, in which case, um, while we try to see if we can reconnect with um, Gesheke, um, we can move on maybe to a um, different question. Um, if this may be an opportunity to bring in questions from um, the, the audience, um, if we have them. Um Okay. So we have a question here which is um to Brian. Um so Brian, um, there was a point made about China mirroring American imperialism and using British colonial institutions. Can you speak more about Exactly what techniques are being used.
4: Absolutely. Um, so this occurs on a number of levels. Uh, for example, now in Hong Kong, in, uh, during the past set of protests in the past year, there's still instances of tear gas being tear gas canisters are being found imported from the UK, which of course used to own Hong Kong as a colony. Um, you also have cases of, for example, British uh, police officers that were there during authoritarian original times, or still there, or part of the current police force, uh, despite the fact that Hong Kong is now hand over to China and are responsible for carrying out violent accidents protesters. Um, they're often in commanding positions. But then for example, more structurally speaking, you have uh, recently with the passage of the national security law earlier this year, the revival of something resembling the British Special Force, which is more or less an intelligence agency uh, under counterinsurgency auspices to crack down on dissent, to uh, investigate, and with substantial powers to do so. And so these kind of policing practices dating back from original colonial times have found a revival then in the, presence, uh, in the present. Uh, before the start of COVID, for example, there was also uh, an attempt to ban the wearing of masks because, again, where, uh, protesters were wearing masks to prevent from being identified by surveillance technologies. And this was a revival of a British era law. A law of still in the book from that period. And the kind of legal structure of uh, the Hong Kong government is still shaped uh, very much by British institutions. And this has been used as a means to prevent electoral attempts at resistance, uh, attempts to run politi- uh, activists as politicians uh, in, in elections or to fight it out in the courts and, and that sort of thing. Um, regarding American imperialism and uh, uh, institutions, Chinese institutions. For example, as I mentioned, with the Trump administration withdrawing from international agreements and military alliances and that kind of thing, China has attempted to to, to pose itself as an alternative, as being a responsible partner that is defending free trade, for example, in a way that America is not. Um, and and just in, in that way, trying to fill in the role that America uh, occupied as, as the current dominant power, whereas China is a rising power. And this has also involved trying to create uh, alternative institutions, for example, to American-dominated ones, to the World Bank, to the IMF, and, and that sort of thing, through, for example, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, through One Belt, One Road, uh, and so forth. And so in trying to, in trying to build uh, alternatives and creating uh, uh, almost like a, a attempt to mimic the successful tactics of America um, after the post-war period, uh, how successful this will be remains to be seen. And I think this is particularly a point of inter-imperial uh, conflict now. But I think even going back to the previous point about um, how kind of techniques uh, go from the centre to the peripheries in that sense, uh, one could even see this as, uh, for, for example, China learning from China, uh, from uh, China learning from America, the previously dominant imperial power, as it attempts to kind of take that position.
2: Thanks, Brian. Um, I think we've got Sheke uh, back, sorry, I was also going to say one thing. Um, that I didn't acknowledge who the question came from. That was from um, samya Dadu. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, thanks for that really um, important and interesting question. Um, so, um, so we've got Gesheke back. So um, I'm not sure. Did you did you hear the question that I, I posed, or should I repeat it?
0: No, I didn't hear, Karim.
2: Okay. So, um, what we're discussing at the moment is, I guess. Um, colonial legacies and colonial relationships and understanding um, contemporary policing practices. So there's, I guess, two parts to the question. One is, um, what kind of colonial history or colonial past has sort of like formed the basis or the foundation for contemporary policing practices? Um, say, for example, um, extrajudicial ju- killings, the use of torture, and so on. Um, so that's one, what, what's, what's been transferred from the colonial past to the contemporary um, policing? And then thinking about the colonial present, are there any kinds of relationships, international relationships between, say, for example, UK um, UK military and Kenyan security forces that continues to inform contemporary policing practices in Kenya?
0: Uh, thank you very much, Karim. A very fundamental question about the history of the colonial colonial policing and what has kept us uh, in this uh, situation for a long time. And uh, Professor Land has really shared this, uh, how the, the security structure was uh, constructed, yeah, so powerful about the securitization, uh, ethnicization, that tribalizations and racialization, racialized in a hierarchy. That's so powerful because uh, that's what what was borrowed from the the colonial the colonial uh, structure. As you know, what happened in Mao Mao, Mao Mao were tortured they were repressed by the British colonial army, uh, they were tortured, and the same torture techniques ha- was transferred to the, to the new colonial state. Uh, the dictatorship of Daniel moy built a, a big house in, within the city centre, but underground there were torture chambers where they used to torture people. You can see this happened during colonial times, and then it happened with the, uh, the independent government and uh, uh, university lecturers university professor workers were tortured because they had a different opinion uh, political opinion uh, against the government of the day during that time so what i can say that uh, these colonial tactics of repressing people deleg- deleg- delegitimizing people's uh, views was used by the by the um, by the independent government. And I think Professor Lada really spoken powerfully about this, I don't know how to explain it. Beyond that, on how the, the state were constructed, borrowing from our former colonial masters. Nothing changed, uh, the same uh, instrument of violence remained the same, the same uh, test against the people, uh, looking at the people as criminal. It has remained permanent that way, destroying a uh, people institution like trade unions, assassination, it, 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 the same way the colonial, policing what happened is what happened in the in the, in the independent. so in the era where we have and i think the professor maybe he needed to explain because i didn't understand very well when he say there's a difference between a capitalist state and a new colonial state that i didn't understand very clearly but the challenges that now we are facing now is that uh, the tools of oppression the tools of uh, surveillance the tools of torture that has been used by US US government in terms of following up about uh, fight against terrorism, even when there is uh, Afghan where they killed prisoners and kill people in the same way that uh, currently our our security agencies are using. Recently there I said there was a report that was exposed by the newspaper mirrors talking about uh, how the Kenya security agencies are being trained in the U.S. in a a clandestine way, where nobody knows, where there's no accountability. And they are detrained and then sent back to Kenya to conduct assassination of the terror suspect. So you see, they have moved away from the question of rule of law, using democratic institution, or using the security agencies where they are accountable by a judiciary or authority that are supposed to check check and balance of the security agencies. So they are moved away from there, borrowing from what uh, policy of America of uh, everybody is uh, guilty, you uh, know, uh, until it. Innocent. Yeah. To our problem, political problem, they they took a military solution to Somalia, so we are still there for a long time now, almost now ten years. We are still there. It's a big problem. Now this terrorism question has remained permanently, coming again and again and again. And majority of the of the people from the Somalia origin have been criminalized, and every time they are told they are terrorists. So you see, this problem is with us. And the same thing, we have a problem with eth- ethnic ethnic questions, as the professor talked about, the state was constructed in a way that tension was created, as happened in Rwanda, Tusi, and Hutu. In the same way with Kenya, we have a huge tribe, like Kikuyu, who fought against the British, and no every, every day is a war, but the issue of land is a big, big, big problem. So we have a major tension, but but what I can say, as, a, as it happened even before, uh, our comrades also from India inspired a lot of the uh, in Kenya, people like uh, Piogama Pinto, Mancasing. all of these were people came from the India, they were brought up to uh, labor, to build a more railway, to build a British railway, but they joined and they organized a trade union that helped to, to spark a, a, a movement, a peace and movement for democratic change. So what I can say as a comrade from South Africa, about international solidarity, we need it to connect ourselves, to connect our struggle, so that we can build international solidarity and amplify our struggle and our voices from different uh, areas, in different uh, regions and geography. As you said also, our history is connected. The history of violence, the history of uh, oppression is connected.
2: Thank you, Gosheki. um We've got a question here from Sam Ivey um, for Cebu. Um, the question is, um, so can we bring in Sabu please, Um, the question is in South Africa the state has used restrictions on gatherings of people in order to repress and heavily police protests, do we think that the police will ever relinquish their newly sanctioned force? Uh,
5: Yes, uh, thank you for the question, Um, it is very important uh, to acknowledge that the police are Acting on the instructions, not only of its managers, uh, the states, but also, you know, forces of imperialism, and you know that that are imposing uh, their imperialist powers over, you know, different nations. So therefore, uh, this is unlikely to stop. Um, the Marikana moments, the Marikana massacre, is one typical example of how the state could not be. Um, could not account, uh, they have acted with impunity, and up until today justice have not uh, been served to the widows and you know um, you know the people of Marikana who um, you know, um, suffered in, in the hands of the state. So violence that we have experienced also under this current uh, national lockdown or rather COVID-19 pandemic, Uh, is a uh, clear uh, indication that the state and its police could act with impunity. So I am afraid that uh, we still have a long way uh, to go in order to hold them accountable, despite South Africa having this regulation of gatherings act uh, that favors, um, you know, the freedom of, you know, association, uh, you know, freedom of expression, you know, but still, um, so, It's a difficult situation when we have a a good law that is supposed to be protecting you, but at the same time, because somehow, the state acts as if they are above the law. Um, We've seen this, they've acted a number of times in a manner that indicates, demonstrated that they are actually law unto themselves. Uh, So you find them becoming this monster that cannot be held accountable for for, um, its, its, its action which is why we need to organize across societies, across borders, um, so that we can actually reach out to uh, the the system itself that has created, that has allowed um, uh, uh, these um, actions of the state uh, to be seen as if they are above our democracies um, and, and all the efforts that, you know, different nations are putting into place in order to find a peaceful and, you know, and a humanized world. So I, I guess we, we still have a long way to go uh, as society we need to organize because we know that these are just systems of created by the minority. Uh, so these guys are smart enough to fool the whole world that they can be law unto themselves. So yes, uh, hence we need to, uh, move fast in order
2: to find um you know international solidarity thank you um it, the term um international solidarity has been mentioned a few times in the discussion or a suggestion for um new or um, revival of old forms of internationalism um in resisting these things um, that's a question i want to come back to eventually but um, may, maybe in, in a bit, because I want to ask a bit more and press on a bit more about um, or draw out some of the connections that um, some of the speakers have already identified. I think, Gesheke, at one point you, you asked a question and posed a question to to rather about um, understanding the spe- specificity of the colonial state. And I wonder if there's uh, maybe the possibility of interrogating that a bit more for understanding um, maybe colonialism or the use of coloniality as a frame to understand um, internal forms of repression, not not simply um, international uh, connections. Um, So um, we've already heard, um, raised and discussed, um, and something that many people are aware of, um, which is the Indian state's repression and occupation of Kashmir. Um, But um, other Indian um, regions have also been subject to various brutal counter-insurgency campaigns, um, such as, say, Punjab, which borders with Pakistan and Assam, which borders with China. Um, How have these border regions been laboratories or been sites for the making of these sorts of templates, rather that you mentioned, for anti-terror laws and and state violence, Um, including things um, that we've been discussing, such as torture, disappearances, extrajudicial killings. Um, Is internal colonialism maybe a useful frame for understanding um, this So yeah, um, so a question to Radha about uh, border regions as sites or laboratories for the making of these sorts of templates and is this internal colonialism?
6: Well, what is internal and external? I mean internal and external starts to make sense if you take the state as an institution to be an autonomous and independent institution. Then the internal becomes what is happening within India or within Kenya or wherever. And the external Mm -hmm. is, you know, whatever is happening outside of that state. But that kind of state-centeredness is something that is not working for a number of reasons, partly because of globalization, post-war era, the integration of economies and so on and so forth. And it had stopped working even during the empire. Now you mentioned about India. India is a very, very interesting case because under the British Empire, there were six kind of categories, administrative categories. yeah, there was the settler colonies, there was the you know mother state, protectorates, etc. And India was a separate administrative col- uh, category because India's role was always seen as a sub-empire of the British Empire. So India was the base from where world wars were fought, the Middle Eastern wars were fought, the African wars were fought. So the Indian soldiers were the ones that were sent all around the world to fight these wars. India has always played that role. So on independence, it didn't really do away with the internal structures of disempowerment of regions, of communities that had been established during the empire. So Assam was always a problem. Nagaland was always a problem. These things have continued from colonial times, and the Indian central government, I should say, because again there are huge issues about between you know the centre and the state, because the central government and its constitution is very much modelled on the 1935 Act, which was a colonial act. Sedition laws were very much came down from the colonial times, you know. What was offenses against the state, a whole chapter was introduced into the criminal legal system by the colonial state, it continues. So the structures have not changed much. And because under the British Empire, India was always the, the, not India, the central government in India was always the pivot for oppressing other nationalities around, that has continued. So, Naga fights go back to, you know, the resistance goes back before independence. I don't know if that uh, makes sense, but, you know, what I'm saying is that India's, you should see India's place in the empire in order to be able to understand how what is happening, so called within India now, is a colonial, head, uh, you know, continuation of the same patterns. And it's the federal government that is being protected by international you know, system. So what happens in the state? Nobody's bothered. What happens in Kashmir? What is Forget about Kashmir. Look at the labor laws now. We have introduced 12-hour working days, 72-hour week, working week. Nobody in the world is interested in that because the state governments are doing it, not the federal government. So that tension needs to be understood in order to be able to understand how these legacies continue. I'll just stop there.
2: That's that's really helpful. Um, um I, I think there's a prompt to, to maybe bring everyone into the discussion so we can have a sort of more collective discussion around um I guess some of the the um like diving into some of the more detail in terms of organizing against um these forms of repression and organizing against um these various forms of policing, counterinsurgency. And so on. Um, I think we've got enough time to do this, but I wanted to invite contributions to discuss this question of internationalism and maybe go into some more detail of what kinds of work we could do to build these um, international connections, international coalitions of resistance against um, both um, domestic forms of um, policing and repression, but also the more globalized forms and global connections in terms of um, policing and counterinsurgency and counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. So how can, so um, in very practical terms or as practical as possible, um, how do you think we can better support, support each other? How do you think we can build these international coalitions of resistance um, and indeed like um, to direct it towards um, our audience, how can our, our audience and our listeners um, perhaps support your movements? Um I should choose someone to answer that. Um Shalini, can um we'll go to you. Do you have an answer to this question?
3: Um, I don't have a very good blueprint to this. I don't think anybody does. But uh definitely I think uh coming from India in a time when nationalism is at its peak, um I think even people who are working in India, I mean I'm directing this at us only. Um we get very defensive about international friends. We're always, um, are always, uh, accused of, have I lost you. Okay. We are always accused of uh, bringing in And anti- we always accused of being anti-national and having foreign influences and Many times we see our movements, our organizations are actually trying to shy away from internationalism. And I think that time is past, and we really have to embrace internationalism and go there as international coalitions. Um, I and mean, we are in a time where an organization like Greenpeace, if it comes and says something about environmental concerns in India, it's kind of said that well you are an intern- you are being funded by the west they don't want to see india's growth and prosperity and that is why uh, you are going going ahead and saying all these con- t- making all these things about uh, international uh, about environment and many organizations don't have the wherewithal to deal with this kind of attacks and they really i have seen that happening that Uh, we tend to say, no, no, we're very national. We don't have any international support. We are like what we are. And I think somewhere we have to shrug off that defensiveness and actually embrace internationalism and take help. And it can happen through maybe, uh, I know I've worked in a trade union and we've actually benefited from having international trade unions come and help us in our struggle. We had trade unionists who were in prison and it was against a multinational and we really, we tried everything locally, we had huge demonstrations, we could not do anything. It was eventually when the International Trade Union took up this cause um, in the headquarters in Zurich that the company was forced to come and talk to us and uh, resolve the issue and we got our people treat. So I really think, I don't know exactly how this internationalism is gonna work out, but I really do think that at this time, let us not get caught in that, di- that division of nationalism versus internationalism. we I think we're seeing nationalist regimes all over the place. And that's a very good way to divide us. And somewhere we have to overcome that and uh, make international coalitions, whether it be based, based on op- occupations, professions, or based on issues. But we have to do that. I don't see a way out.
0: Hi, can I say something, uh, Karim? go for it. Go on. i think i'm very inspired by and especially cebu in south africa we want more to learn about how shark dwellers have been uh, struggling with uh, the violence of apartheid. we really really about them about you and the great work that you have done and i'm very happy to meet you here because uh, uh, we have a lot to learn from south africa a lot a lot a lot to learn so i think first we can connect uh, struggles of informal sentiment in nairobi Police brutality, violence—all uh, challenges we are facing. I think we can connect and have a, 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 a collective campaign. Every time you US use a statement, uh, allows about condemning the police brutality—that kind of thing—we can connect uh, and see how we we, we amplify each other voices. I remember when the Marikana miners they were killed, we did a small protest here to South African embassy. At that time, if we had known about Shackdwell and contact, maybe we would have said, told you, hey, we're doing something, let's amplify each other. Boy. So I, I think we can start in that level. Also, I think we can create a, a network uh, now because in the level of existing uh, movement, social movement, because the challenge also we are having in the uh, engineization of our struggles, where they are depoliticized and uh, lack of clarity, and then you know, people don't articulate the big challenge that we are facing. So I think with this, this starting is very important. And I I hope I was linked up here by Progressive International, uh, Comrade Matt, and I'm sure Tanya know about about him. I think also they are trying to create a a network together. Uh, And I hope uh, we can think about how we can build a a network and uh, linking up with other uh, organized forces that I imagine, especially during COVID-19. I hope this is not the last time
2: Thank you, Gosheke. Um, that would have been the perfect opportunity and invitation to bring Sabu into this uh, conversation and respond um, to both your your, your your prompt to talk more about shack dwellers and also talk about international connections. But I, I fear that we may have lost uh, the connection with Sabu. Um, so that's something we can come back to. Um, but the um, but uh, just to repose the question again um, and, may, and invite Brian to respond. Um, the question was about the sort of like the practical of how do we build international coalitions of resistance? How do we support each other practically? Um, and if you have any sort of like prompts for how the audience or the listeners to this session can support the, um, the movements that you're involved in um, to also discuss that.
4: Mm. So I think it could be a challenge facing, uh, for example, countries that face the threat in China or places uh, such as Hong Kong or Taiwan or Xinjiang or Tibet or Inner Mongolia regarding, for example, uh, attempts to, to force to assimilate uh, minority groups or to erode away at democratic freedoms, is that the people there sometimes will just try to appeal to the US, to another imperial power, instead of building solidarity with uh, international social movements and that kind of thing. And so then when you try to do that uh, from a left wing perspective, people tell you, well, what's the point of this work? Like, why are you doing this? You're just building ties with useless, small, fragmented movements. And so then really, I think a lot of the challenge, I think, facing us as a kind of black wing activists is to show people like why these ties matter, that these aren't ties in which we're using each other for mutual interest, that we can learn each from each other and build uh, uh, alliances to challenge the power structures that exist between the great imperial powers of the world, um, superpowers, and, and so forth, um, to actually, in that sense, actually push for self-determination. And so I think, oh, then one can point to, for example, uh, skill sharing. That's one way in which we can learn each other. You're learning from tactics, like I mentioned earlier, regarding how to deal with uh, states and surveillance technology and that kind of thing. Um, but I think also another, another important role is that emotional support, um, working in these movements, uh, actually is just very, very, uh, damaging to mental health. Um, it actually is that actually is, uh, it just wears down at you and knowing that you have support sometimes, even if it's not a very tangible support is actually helpful. And then uh, I think then more importantly, then we call point to larger structural things. Um, for example, Shalini brought up, I think the 12 hour working days. I mean, there was an interesting campaign between American and Chinese tech workers, pointing to the fact that in, uh, that Chinese tech workers have a schedule, it's called like the, uh, uh, I forget the exact name, but it's from working from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. And so then bringing kind of awareness of this between the two contexts, uh, then maybe this can expand to pointing towards how such conditions, exist more than one industry. And that may be something that could build towards, let's say, an international campaign, shed light on this kind of global uh, issue. I mean, that's just an example that comes off the top of my head. Um, But I think that particularly, I think we have to think about how to build alternative structures to just the powers that exist now because then those structures are the states and then how do we out organize states that's that's the challenge and I think that for non-state actors uh, that's something that we are all struggling to figure out
2: uh, thanks Brian this might um uh, just to stay with you and um, ask a follow-up question and this might be a bit of an unfair question because of <laughs> precisely that difficulty and the struggle of building um, I guess autonomous forms of um counter-hegemony um revolutionary power whatever you want to call it um but do you have any sort of, like um you point you pointed to a couple of examples but um do, do you have any other like practical examples of that sort of working or um mm-hmm. the, the the potentials behind that i think the example that that you raised of like um connecting different worker struggles is a really mm-hmm. interesting one especially because it directs us towards thinking about among other things international divisions of labor and the way in which that um, is often used to um, exploit um, workforces. Um, but do you have any other examples of these sorts of international connections that, that might be useful to learn from?
4: Absolutely. I mean, I think the issue is then that capitalism is global. Uh, that's, that's how it is. Oftentimes, if people that own a company and they're workers in some company, they're actually somewhere else. And so then how do you pressure them? Then it requires uh, actually having workers in, in more than one country mobilizing around an issue. Being willing to stand up for, for example, fellow workers in another country because of the fact they face the same conditions and not viewing them as uh, competitors for example, the same jobs. And an example I would think of is, for example, uh, many Chinese workers are employed by Taiwanese companies. Well, then I would like to see then Taiwanese workers standing up for their Chinese counterparts rather than seeing these as people that stole their jobs and, and the factories being located really there and so forth. And I think that's, that's the thing that the right is very good at leveraging on particularly at present with this kind of nationalist moment we're seeing across the world, uh, splitting workers against each other. And so forth um and i think that, that actually that's maybe the historical issue facing internationals or um, let's say even something like the non-alignment movement though is that they were actually still built around states in that way and sometimes that actually then led to dissolution of internationals uh when their uh national interests came to conflict with each other when their let's say national security issues then came into conflict with each other and how do we actually move beyond that towards international and towards solidarity that won't actually just fragment in this way leave us mired in nationalism because the failure of international as i look at it just really strengthens nationalism all the more
2: thank you um rada i want to bring you in on this question now and um, um especially um because i think um in your talk you really emphasized the need to think about the international and the way in which the international and agreements and uh, treaties and laws that are being constructed in this in the space of the international rather than domestic as a site of struggle um and um, i was wondering if, if you feel like that's a that's that's a, a way of like renewing our understanding of internationalism so moving beyond simply saying we have our separate domestic struggles and we need to connect them if there's something more we can do with thinking about our struggles internationally
6: yeah, I think, let me just, you know, first clarify, we have to struggle domestically. Yeah, because that's where we live and that's where the struggle has to be. I would say in our cities, in our states, in our countries. There is no two way about that. But we are already doing that. So we, I would rather focus on what we are not doing much of, which is, you know, linking what is happening at home to the international uh, system and the international domain. And since the Second World War, more and more our domestic states and structures and economies and everything is structured by that and is influenced by that. Let's take a very simple example of Venezuela. right? Venezuela wants to do something within its own country. It has got its elected systems and the whole world is against Venezuela for human rights, etc., etc. The kind of human rights abuses in India at present is unimaginable, unimaginable, because it takes page after page out of Nazi law books and introduces that, whether it's National Citizen of Registers, whether it is techniques, everything, and nobody's talking about it. Why? Tomorrow if India goes against the United States for whatever reason, then the whole world will be talking about human rights abuses in India. And I think our inability to comprehend this, not negative, this is not this we have become so accustomed to this dualistic framing of things, international, national, state, you know, non-state, et cetera, et cetera. We don't live in those kind of insulated cubicles anymore. And I think it's important to understand that. My idea of the, in, why, the reason I mentioned a new type of international is we are already doing a lot of national struggles and supporting each other across boundaries in many cases, and we could do more of that. But there are certain issues that we should focus against the international system. We did a bit of that in the anti-globalization movements where we came out against the World Bank 50 years is enough campaign, for example, the the, uh, IMF structural adjustments, et cetera. But on security issues, we have not focused on the international the arms manufacturers, the arms traders, all the Pegasus intelligence spyware people who supply to every government. If you look at Pegasus, it's an Israeli company. And Israel only sells it to other states. Now, we have not taken up issues like this on a global platform i mean there are bits like you know arms trade and and, and like that but a lot more of that has to happen uh, extraordinary rendition yeah torture for example cia reinvented torture and legalized it in guantanamo bay and in many other places with extraordinary rendition but we have not seen torture as an international issue we continue to see it as a state issue So I think we need to build international platforms on questions like torture, like securitization, like anti-terrorism laws in the same way or comparable to what we did against World Bank and structural adjustment and things like that.
2: Thank you, Radha. Um, We've got uh, Sabu back. Um, So we're hoping to bring you in on this question of internationalism um, perhaps taking Gesheke's uh, prompt, um, but also talking about what kind of correlations we can build and what kind of practices we can introduce into our work to help build these international connections. Uh,
5: thank you. Uh, sorry that I uh, somehow this got disconnected. Uh, I just want to say that capitalism is a global force. Imperialism is also a global force, and there can be no advancements for the working class and the impoverished majority of the world, if our struggle is not global one. We must, and we have to build solidarity in humility. I mean, a living solidarity in which an injury to one becomes an injury to all. Uh, We have seen how this can best work. Uh, For instance, 10 years ago, when our movement was under attack, there was a, Protests in London by London Coalition, there was big protests in New York City, there was a big protest in Budapest in Hungary. That on its own really brought about change in the South African um, history of us being marginalized, criminalized, but confined into a dark corner as if we belong nowhere. So we have seen in our past, we have a great experience of how this um, has played out uh, today. Abacha has this amazing support internationally, which is why uh, while we receive international solidarity, but we we want to offer ours. Uh, like as we speak, the Philippines comrades are under attack. The, there's a lot of um, you know assassination in the Philippines, and on Monday, Abacha would be uh, you know staging a protest here in solidarity with the Philippines. So we need to be very realistic and be practical and be passionate when we are actually talking about, you know, the question of internationalism as well as solidarity. But the point that I want to stress is that without any foundation on the grounds, there can be no real internationalism and solidarity. So we need to be realistic about what we can, how we can relate, otherwise it becomes an abstract and academic exercise that does not really rendering any support to anyone. So my plea is that let's build our organization at the national or regional level. And then with that um, reality, and then we can connect that globally. So the problem becomes when we want to become suddenly so big when we actually have no foot on the ground, that would be a big mistake. We've seen movements, networks and so on, trying to look big without actually having any substance on the ground. So this is my call to say internationalism and international solidarity is so important, but without us organizing on the ground where we are able, where we are capable within our reach so that we can build a substance. So we must be honest with what we are capable of and we must also reflect on our weaknesses. But the way to go is to acknowledge that the global force that we are forcing Requires us to join at a global level, but then to do that, uh, one it is important, of course, that we 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 build a very strong force on, on on the ground in order to tackle this global monster. It is a global monster, and it can only when the you know the masses of people, the working class, um, are speaking in one voice. How one frames that, then we can relate back to what. Dr. Raja was saying um, in terms of how we do advocacy work around conscientizing our communities. So for me, that's the only way to, um, we, we, we must act locally um, uh, and build uh, um, you know, international solidarity. It is, it is very important. I think it's only when we can become a threat to this global force that is working against the people.
2: Thank you, Sabu. I think um, we're, we're running out of time, but that was a great note to end it on. Um, it's a shame because I could listen to you all speak for hours, honestly. This has been um, a, a great session to listen to all of your thoughts and wisdom. Um, um, I would encourage um, anyone listening um, or the audience to say thanks to our speakers by maybe just popping a thanks in the comments section. Um, and, um, and yeah, and my thanks to the speakers as well. I'm going to hand over to Tanya and Adrija to conclude and wrap up the session. But thanks, everyone.
1: Uh, thank you, everyone. We don't really have anything to say except to thank all of you for coming. It's been really wonderful to listen to you. And um, as Karen said, I wish we could listen to you for another two hours. So thank you so much to Karen, Radha, Brian, Falni, Gacheke, and Sibu. Um, and a uh, quick last few announcements from TWP. Um, if you would like to register for other events, there are actually continuing I think, for the next three weeks. So there are loads of events going on. There's one event on Friday, which is specifically about um, the uh, growing authoritarianism in India and the resistance from women, the women's movement, and student activists, to the Regime over the last few years. So uh, do jump into that if you can, and just have a look at the demographic of event other events. Um, and if you enjoyed the session, um, you can support uh, TWT3, TWT, the Supporters Network. Uh, finally, please also uh, do follow the Detention Solidarity Network because we're going to be, um, Samia has been live tweeting this conversation and she's also going to post further resources on everything that our speakers have been talking about and we'll keep in contact with everyone and um, and, and post about it from the Depth Soul Twitter. So, uh, thank you so, so much for coming and I hope that we can stay in contact with each other outside of this meeting as well. Bye everyone.
0: Bye bye, thanks. Bye. 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 We Good.
2: <laughs> View the full TWT20 program and become a supporter today to help us deliver political education all year round at theworldtransformed.org.